This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. It's a new thing for me, Corrie. I mean, I've been covering sport for four decades and all the pay disputes I've covered in the past, it's all been about money and wanting more money. And now it's complex when athletes are saying, no, no, it's not the money, it's where the money's coming from. This is cornflakes in a packet to Gina Reinhart. It's not a lot of money and it's not a lot to suggest to her that maybe you just kind of draw a line between your dad and you and move forward. It would have been the most important and I think a really profound move if she'd done that. And all is not what it seems. And these absolute clangers of massive pieces of family history are just dropped really casually in a quite sort of strange way. And I think the theme of this novel is you think you want something so badly and you'll do anything to get it, even if it's something immoral. And usually when you end up getting that thing, it's not all it's cracked up to be anyway. Oh, I love that idea. It's the most beautiful book. His baby son, who's four months old, has lived through three prime ministers and two monarchs. <laughs> What's happening, Britain? So Rishi Sumak is the new prime minister. Get his name unopposed. pronunciation right, unlike the American president. Oh, oh, wasn't that a diabolical situation? Um, At least he remembered his name, which is more than we can say for Scott Morrison. <laughs> Good on you, pal. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 241 of our little podcast, and I'm here in the studio with Miss Jane's Beautiful Flowers and Caroline Wilson. It just doesn't get better than this, Carol. How are you going? Well, it does actually, Corey. It, the sun could be shining and there was no, there was, there's no rain and no thought of rain for a few weeks just so the people who are really struggling could have a breather. But you're right. It's lovely to be in here. It's lovely to see you. Great to see you. We've got a wonderful show today. I have a great recipe. Cara's going to tell us about a new Ann Tyler book. Well, you've been a bit secretive about this recipe. Because well, I, I sort of hinted at you the other day that I had this tuna mixture and I was hoping to, and you said all will be revealed yes. on the podcast. Well, I, well, it's 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 not tricky, but it's particular, and I think I think fabulous. you've got to get the balance right. But before we start, Caro, just um, sending our thoughts to all of the flood affected potties out there and any of their families in Victoria and New South Wales who might be having a very tough time. We wish you. Well, we wish you all the luck in the world, but we wish you sunshine and a quick recovery from what I'm sure has been a traumatic experience. So lots of love from Caro and I uh, there. Caro, we're, uh, we're analysing to within an, an inch of the pundit's life, the budget, Jim Chalmers' first budget, the Albanese government's first, Are we? first budget. Oh, well, I have been addicted. Look, you I know, don't, it's me, not on the running sheet. I no, thought. no, no. I was just, I was just going to say that you know, typical of me last night when I should have been thinking about podcast things. It's a bit like Brownlow Medal Night. I have to watch the budget. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. So it's been a busy week in Canberra, but. Um, on another topic completely unrelated, I just wanted to thank once again uh, Elo Botanicals. A couple of weeks ago... Oh, the beautiful Claire. The beautiful Claire. I saw her at the National Gallery's Open Garden Day last Thursday. She was wandering around. Collecting botanicals for her. And new... Anna from the op shop bailed her up and I said, that's Claire, because I gave Anna from the op shop one of mine. And Anna took her through the whole thing. 
It's such beautiful product, isn't it? Oh, so Potties, Claire very kindly uh, gifted this to Caro and I. It's a new company of hers. In fact, last year when she was on the podcast with me while you were away, Caro, um, she told us that this was in product development phase. Well, can I tell you, Elo Botanicals, if you want to have a look, um, just go onto Instagram. It's probably the best thing. E-L-L-O Botanicals, all one word. And they are the most beautiful natural botanical facial oils. In fact, you could put it all over your body if you wanted to. But I find if I put mine on before I go to bed at night, which is when our skin really does dry out, isn't it just a wonderful product and it smells so beautiful? It is. I actually put it on before I go on my morning walk under my moisturiser with SP whatever. I've got a couple of quick... Um, can I just do one cheerio to my gorgeous friend Serena who apologised to me last week she said, I'm a terrible friend. You know, you know, Serena's one of my closest friends and you know her very well too. She's not a terrible friend. She's a lovely friend. She found out last week about our podcast. <laughs> she said, I just always, people have talked about your podcast and I assumed it was a footy podcast. Darl, I've never listened. I'm so sorry. I listened to, I said, well, we've been going. For five years, picks Longer. Oh, yeah. I, well, yeah. No, over five years, Corrie, like nearly six years. She said... Well, I've got a lot of catching up to, a lot of catching up to do. I said, "You'll never catch up." Anyway, well, you could do what your mother told me she did once. Julia said sometimes when she's a bit short of time, she puts us on the speed one and a half. Oh, yeah. So we're talking really quickly. Somebody, somebody <laughs> came up to us the other day and say, "No, someone came up to Randall from the op shop and said he always puts it on." Someone at oh, one and Beach. a half. Yeah, because he doesn't really like it that much, so he just gets it over with a bit quicker. We were a bit offended, actually. Um, Anyway, there we are. Now, we have some lovely correspondence from Joanna Weir, who's a dear friend of the podcast, and she says via Instagram, Dear Carol and Corrie, I'm going through the archives and found this beautiful article by Caroline written in 1997. I was immediately taken back to the Portsea and Sorrento of the 1960s and am now wallowing in nostalgia. I have attached this very precious piece of work that proudly takes its place amongst our family history. Thank you for your podcast. It's so much fun to join in every week for a catch-up. Best wishes, Joe Weir. And there's a beautiful byline photograph of you here, Caro. Gosh, what an attractive young woman you are. Taken by the brilliant Wayne Ludby. Someone, I remember an old chief of staff did comment, who was a Canadian portrait artist who Caro enticed to take that photo of her? I think I've always been pretty happy with that photo. Uh, yeah, I think it lasted for about 15 years, didn't it? It was, it opened, it, it was an article about beach vandals and I quote Alison Nestor at the beginning and yeah, um, one of lovely, our favourite. Lovely story. And do, your, do your grandchildren like Alison Lester? Oh, still, always love. She's a complete go-to and in fact I'm trying to get her for the Sorrento Writers Festival because I think She'd adults be and children. Because of course a lot of the children who have grown up with her like mine and now parents. So everybody would get something out of Noni the Pony or. She lives um, at Fish Creek. Rosie Sips. Spiders and Clive, oh, Clivet's alligators, all Magic of those. Beach. I mean, they were just wonderful Oh, books. all of those. Simone Dorovich uh, got in touch with us, Caro, via email. Hi, Caro and Cory. I love your show and listen to it every week. I'm interested in your thoughts regarding your replacement, Caro, on Wednesday night's footy classified. For those who aren't up with the news, Caro is bowing out of the Wednesday night show, but she'll still be doing the Monday night Well, they're one. dropping like flies because Ross Lyon's gone oh. now too. <laughs> He's uh, gone to a much more exciting job than I. I'm just having an extra night at home. Uh, Miss Jane, your phone will be ringing soon. You'll be there. I feel, uh, Simone continues, I feel it should definitely be a woman or an Indigenous person to give ongoing variation to the panel. Do you think this will happen? AFL represents more than white 
AFL represents more than white men, so surely the shows that provide the analysis of the game should have the same representation. Here, here, Simone. What do you think, Caro? Yes, well, so it was. It has been put to me by the powers that be who I who I think should come on to replace me, and I've put forward the names of a couple of women and a couple of men. But I think now that Ross is leaving as well, I think it's probably going to have to create a whole new rethink. I mean, there was one thought that, you know, just have a three-person panel because, as you know, Corrie, I'm irreplaceable. No, I'm only, I'm only joking. But um, No, she did say that with a straight face. No, well, I, I think I think Eddie's view was that, you know, maybe three is just as is fine. I think four is a really good dynamic. Yeah, well, and, and the different skill sets, I think. Well, certainly for the, yeah, I think that I think the different skill sets that everybody brings to the table makes it interesting. There'd be, I mean, I can think already of a couple of really impressive Indigenous performers. I mean, Shelley Ware would be brilliant. Mickey O, Michael O'Loughlin would be great, although he's a club board member, although we have had Chris Judd on in the past and he was a club board member. Gosh, wouldn't Emma Race bring a bit of firecracker to the whole panel? She'd be, oh, wouldn't I didn't think great? of Emma. Of course, she'd be great. Number one ticket holder at Hawthorne. Um, Cara, what else have we got in our mailbag? One more from Joy Billings. Hi, Joy. You got in touch with us via Facebook. Long-time listener, says Joy, to your podcast. I'm 76 and my life mainly consists of driving my Winnebago around this country. My fear is having to go into aged care, which won't be treated like my home. The only way to get decent food is have some company deliver. I will be expected to pay $500 a week to wait to die without dignity. Shame. These places are only concentrated on making a profit. Gosh, Joy, that is a very profound and important oh, message yeah. that you've sent us. Uh, Joy, keep, keep driving that Winnebago around the country. Yeah, I think... Um, Although there are some lovely aged care facilities around, but I can understand how you I always think of that. your mother, Peg, and her Mahjong group and how they all vowed that, to each other that they wouldn't let any of their children put them into aged care homes. Mm. Oh, no, mum was terrified that Steve was going to put her in a ga- caravan at the back of his backyard. Oh, that, w- <laughs> that would be. I think, I'd, I think I'd rather go to our care. Nothing wrong with Steve's back, back garden, but not a caravan, not a, you know, not not, not peg, Not peg. <laughs> Um, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. So thank you everybody. And don't forget, we love your feedback. Uh, you can just get in touch with us via, um, Instagram or Facebook or via our email, which is, um, Jane feedback <laughs> at don't shoot pod.com.au. Okay. Five years. Pixie, I still haven't learned. What. Honestly. <laughs> I still probably. haven't learned what the email is. Thank you, Jane. Now, Carol, on to uh, one of the big issues of the past week or so, which is the Diamonds, our Australian netball team, versus Gina Reinhart, the world's richest woman. Can you fill us in on what's been happening there? Well, uh, Hancock Prospecting has withdrawn their offer of a 15... The, the, a deal had been done with Netball Australia for, to sponsor the Diamonds to the tune of $15 million. Um, Gina Reinhart has now withdrawn that money. There was a lot of debate that went on. I mean, there's a few things we need to know. One is that Netball Australia has got serious financial issues. We know they sold the grand final Earlier this year, it was quite controversial over to Perth. As it turned out, it was a good move, and that's where it probably should have been anyway. But that caused a lot of anguish. Um, is this about um, prospecting and taking money from a mining conglomerate, or is it more more about Lang Hancock's comments 
40, 50 years ago um, where he said that one way to fix the Indigenous problem in Australia is to sterilise Indigenous people and slowly breed them out. Now, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk that this is a comment made by by Gina Reinhardt's father, not Gina Reinhardt. It was made many years ago. Um, is it? And, and obviously now we have an Indigenous player in in the Diamond Squad, and the girls have the women have stood behind their teammate. Uh, it's it, this is one of the more complex issues that I've ever seen in sport, Corrie, because where do you draw the line? I mean, we've spoken a lot about Greg Norman's Rebel Golf Tour and getting into bed with the Saudis and sports washing. And you could say that mining money in this era is not a good place to be. We've seen the Australian cricket captain refuse to don the gear of a linter energy because um, this, is not, this is not a good carbon company in terms of its emissions. Um, but, but he is happy. He's not walking away from the team or the money and he's not walking. He's just not going to do the ads for them and he's not going to wear their gear. Where do you draw the line? I, I, I really admire the Diamonds for what they've done. And I've heard people defend Gina Reinhart and talk about the great, the, her generous um, sponsorships of rowing and swimming and how wonderful she is with them. I mean, I'm not sure, not sure about that. I'm not sure that the relationships are as smooth as some sporting commentators have said. And um, I think there have been some... Some rowers and some swimmers have talked about some of the more onerous disciplines put upon them to comply with the Hancock prospecting money. So Gina Reinhardt's withdrawn the money. She has been scathing about um, this stand by the netballers and thinks they've, you know, they're not really understanding the issues. Uh, where, where, as I said, where do you stop? Now, some sometimes governments step in and ban sponsorships, as they have with with tobacco. But alcohol sponsorship is not banned. And this, you know, this is one of the major causes of domestic violence. Um, obviously, gaming sponsorships are not banned. And there was talk last week that the Diamonds were going to turn to a, a gambling sponsor instead. Now, th- this has caused some of the greatest social problems. I, I, I would say gambling, problem gambling, gambling is in the top three of Australia's worst social problems. So... <sighs> It, it's so difficult. I'm not. I can't take a strong stand here either way, but I can understand why the women have done this and why they weren't prepared to wear the logo of Hancock Prospecting on their shirts. Well, where do you stand? Well, I'm. I'm very much with. Uh, I'm very. I'm very much with Donald Wallum, who is the Indigenous player who was making her debut in this series against England, and she said she felt uncomfortable wearing the uniform of Hancock Prospecting with the logo because of those comments that Lang made in the 1980s. It's then kind of escalated a little bit within the team, it seems, um, to be mining and then a lot of the pundits and commentators have been talking about mining, as you said, where does it stack up with alcohol sponsorship in sport or tobacco or whatever it might be. But my sympathies are with her. Apparently Wallum is devastated and so distressed and no doubt feeling that She's taking on some responsibility for for the netball organisation losing fifteen mil. But a couple of things I just want to netball say: netball Australia is not like the AFL; they can't actually they can't afford it. Yeah. I know. But to me, Gina Reinhart and I've read 
uh, Adele Ferguson's most excellent biography that came out about um, maybe about eight years ago of Gina Reinhardt. It's brilliant. Current organisation follows and, you know, sort of try and repair damaged souls and damaged hearts in that. That would, to me, would have been the most compassionate and obvious. And indeed, it would have been very good for the PR for Hancock prospecting, I'd just suggest. The other thing too is if you are a multinational looking for a really good opportunity and if you've had a somewhat tarnished reputation in recent times or you're wanting to raise your profile, can I just suggest that um, the netballers might be um, very keen to talk to you and that would be a great opportunity. Um, and just to put it in perspective, wh- what this $15 million means to Gina Reinhardt herself. So uh, at last count, the Fin Review earlier this year said that um, Gina Reinhardt's uh, wealth net worth was $34.2 billion. 2% of that, Caro, 2% is $680 million, right? So, and 2% of $680 million is $13.6 million. So it's a little bit more. So if that gives you an idea of this is cornflakes in a packet to Gina Reinhardt, and I'm not saying that, that sponsorships, money should be thrown here, there, and around nearly, willy-nilly in the philanthropic world or corporate sponsorship world. It is a serious business, but it's not a lot of money and it's not a lot to suggest to her that maybe you just kind of draw a line between your dad and you and move forward. It would have been the most important and um, I think a really profound move if she'd done that. It is. It's a new thing for me, Corrie. I mean, I've been covering sport for four decades and all the pay disputes I've covered in the past and financial, it's all been about money and wanting more money. And now it's complex when athletes are saying, no, no, it's not the money, it's where the money's coming from. And um, Cricket Australia are now faced with a situation where, and I talked about Pat Cummins and I think Alinta Energy is the name of the company, um, they'll stay there, but they're negotiating a new CBA at the moment, a new collective bargaining agreement, and they're asking for greater consultation um, about their use as a billboard for you know, fossil fuels, uh, gambling, fast food, alcohol. Now, Usman Khawaja doesn't drink and doesn't want to wear an alcohol logo on his out on his kit, but he's not. He's fine about if, the rest of the team yeah, doing so. That, yeah. And and then we had the Pride round, of course, in um, AFLW, and there is one. GWS player who two seasons in a row has not played because she won't wear the pride jumper. Now, that, that's even more complex because is she being intolerant of different people's sexuality or are we being intolerant of her intolerance? And you saw that whole group of Sydney NRL players who wouldn't wear the pride jumper. So, it, look, it's um, I think this is going to be a whole new set of problems, a whole new set of problems for sporting administrators now that players are asking. And and as I said, where do you draw the line? I mean, one man's meat is another man's poison. But then maybe a good thing that comes out of this, Carol, is that those corporations and individuals who want to enter into the sponsorship space, maybe they have to apply um, new standards of governance and new rigorous investigation into, okay, so why are we really doing this? Who are we doing this for? What is our mission? What are we hoping to get out of it? And what do we hope the community gets out of it? I don't think those are always the first and foremost questions that those boards ask themselves. Well, good luck. I mean, you look at the West Coast Eagles and Fremantle Dockers. They're two of the wealthy. West Coast is the richest football club in the country. Fremantle's doing pretty nicely too, despite their the fact they've never won a flag. And they're a much newer club. And, you know, a lot of that money comes comes from mining 
anyway, it's it's this is not an issue that's going to go away. Fascinating. It fascinating is fascinating. Topic. So just also fascinating, before we go to Miles, we have to talk about what's been happening in the UK. There was a tweet the other day, Carol, I think it was a British journalist or maybe a former journalist who said that his baby son, who's four months old, has lived through three prime ministers and two monarchs. <laughs> What's happening, well, Britain? There's been mean comments about lettuce and, you know, number 10, you know, <laughs> on Airbnb. So Rishi Sumak is the new Prime Minister. Um, Get his name unopposed. pronunciation right, unlike the American president. Oh, oh, wasn't that a diabolical situation? Um, At least he remembered his name, which is more than we can say for Scott Morrison. <laughs> Good on your pal. Um, good. Pal. I don't. Well, you know, the whole world cringed at that point, didn't we? But um, yes, he called him Rashid Sinuk, which actually sounds nothing like Rishi Sumak. But anyway, Rishi Sumak, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, he's been an MP since 2015, is now Britain's third Prime Minister in 50 days. He was born in Southampton. He went to Winchester, Oxford. Clearly, a brilliant person uh, in his in his studies. Um, went on to study an MBA at Stanford in California. And a very rich person. He then, well, he then came back and was working for Goldman, Goldman Sachs. But he married, I think this is how you pronounce it, Akshata Murthy, and she is the daughter of Indian, an Indian billionaire businessman who founded Infosys, one of those high-tech firms. And uh, together, Rishi and his wife are... Um, the 222nd richest people in Great Britain with a combined income of 730 million, which is more than Prince, not Prince Charles, sorry, King Charles actually is worth. So that's an interesting dynamic and also interesting when Rishi Sumak talks about uh, about um, underprivileged, low-income families and how he can emote with them and feels empathy. Anyway, maybe he can, I don't know. He was a pro-Brexiteer. He supported Boris Johnson. And then after the whole Partygate episode, uh, to create distance, and he was so horrified by the lack of transparency there, he resigned as Chancellor in July this year, which was one of the final nails in Boris's um, prime ministership. Uh, of course, uh, Rishi Sumak comes hot on the heels of Liz Truss, who had her final audience with King Charles the other day, not filmed this time, Caro. No, she <laughs> was a disaster, They didn't want him saying, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, her, her prime ministership was a disaster. Mistake after mistake, everything fell apart pretty quickly. Uh, Rishi Sumak has made it quite clear that he wasn't impressed with Liz Truss and her performance, and in the end... It was a well. It wasn't a Stephen Bradbury because he's obviously got the qualifications, but no one else can um, challenge, did they? He got it on his no, own. He got it on his own. So, so it'll be interesting to see how he fares. I was listening to a commentator this morning who said Keir Starmer, who is the leader of the Labor Party, and has just been watching all of this evolve uh, with probably the grin of a Cheshire cat. They are very similar men in their presentation. They are quite conservative. They are incredible. They're both incredibly articulate. Whereas Keir Starmer and Labor probably thought Liz Truss bring on the next election, hurrah hurrah. Then yep. they now may be thinking mm, Rishi Sumak. You know, he's a very good communicator, and it'll be interesting to see in the next few weeks whether he can bring the party and indeed the country with him. Is it shades of Malcolm Turnbull? You know, there was sort of I know Malcolm Turnbull is wealthy, but not. 
not wealth of these not proportions. Seven hundred and thirty million. But you know the, the the feeling that they didn't really need to be doing it. He didn't really need the job, um, and it, that's a good thing in a way that he's yes. doing it for the right reasons. I, I look his performances of just watching them over the past twenty four hours. He is um, he is quite impressive. I think he's he's certainly dedicated to public service. I think that's in every fibre in his body, which which um, supports what you're saying. A little wooden, but that could be nerves or I don't know, could be whatever. But so interesting that he is, um, he, from his background um, and the success that he's had, I think it will be a really interesting few months. But um, farewell, Liz Truss. So that means, Caro, that in Parliament He'll only now... ever be remembered for one thing, let's face it. And that's her last audience, the Queen's last audience. The Queen's last audience. But, Caro, isn't it interesting that in the House of Commons, when Rishi Sumak stands up to speak, he'll have Theresa May, um, Boris Johnson and, of course, Liz Truss all sitting there just watching and waiting. Well, Three former Prime Ministers. How are they waiting? What are any of them going to do? I mean, Boris, even Boris has had the good grace to admit that he could only be the divisive figure if he came back. Finally. Okay, so I think we need a drink and we have Miles joining us now with the cocktail cabinet. Carol and Jane are bringing in the trolley with Miles on top of it with some gorgeous wine from Southern Rhone in France. Mm. Miles, I think that's where we're oh, going. Fabulous. Imported French wine, Miles. What, what else is there? <laughs> no, plenty, plenty else. Uh, yeah, Stefan Stefan Ogier. He's um, a winemaker we've been working with for quite some time. So we import wines at Prince Wine Store too, direct. Um, we've built quite a nice wholesale portfolio. So we sell them to other restaurants and things and, and other retailers, but we also, oh. we also retail them as well. That's why Miles is always going overseas, Cara. <laughs> Didn't you realise? Well, I've been one since ju- He doesn't years. just... <laughs> 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 Do you don't just go take photographs of the... Tour Lefel, do you? You no, they're, they're, there to do they're business. very hectic, very hectic trips. You know, you're sort of three or four appointments a day, you know, often current releases and then through the barrel rooms and tasting all the stuff out of barrel. Stéphane Augier, who, who we're talking about, he was on the list but was on holiday and it just didn't work out. And it, I was a little bit gutted because I'm a big fan of his wines. Describe the, we couldn't vin- get to go. describe the place, the vineyard, or you've obviously read about so, it. So, yeah, I haven't been to his southern... I, I know he's not... So he's more famous for his Cote Roti in particular. He's a Syrah producer from the Northern Rhone, makes really phenomenal wines, had really great family holdings and has sort of added to that and has become a bit of a superstar of the Northern Rhone. And we sort of came onto these Southern Rhones almost by accident by a, a previous employee who went over there on his, I think, on his honeymoon and made an appointment and he came back and he said, oh, these Southern Rhone wines that Augier makes are great. And we're like, he doesn't make any. And they're like, oh, I'm pretty sure he does. And then we emailed him and was like, do you make some? He goes, yeah, of course I do. I didn't think you were interested. Ah. So we got some samples, got sent over and we're like, yeah, these are fantastic. So this is the, oh, I'm not sure what it is, maybe the sixth or seventh vintage of the Southern Rhone wines that we've bought in. So Cote de Rhone Rouge, Grenache-based blend with a bit of Syrah and a little bit of Mouved and then the Cote de Rhone Blanc, which you don't see as much Southern Rhone Blanc, but no. can be very, very good. It can be a bit hit and miss, but his is quite fantastic. And like Grenache Blanc, Viognier, uh, Claret Blanc, there's a bunch of bunch of different things you get in the Rhone there. And do you, it's a do you sort have a favourite one, Miles? Uh, of... Of a Cote de Rhone Blanc. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love Augier's. Obviously, they're very, very good. Um, there's Paul Jaboulet as well. He's quite a big sort of negotiant and domain over there. 
Um, his Cote de Blanc I've been quite a big fan of. Um, the Gigal Cote de Ron Blanc, it's it's always very, very good and not expensive. So the Stefan um, O'Hier Cote de Ron Blanc, yep. how much would that set so us the, back? They're both, I think, 30, 38. Uh-huh. Um, and, of course, the 10% discount you get for the listeners. Um, well, that's not bad. So so these yeah, are... Yeah, so they're a little bit more on the serious side of Roan. You know, often Roan's seen as, you know, cheap and sort of cheerful, but, you know, there's there's definitely some more... You know, so you probably know Chateauneuf de Pap and Chicondas. They're these very famous Southern Roan villages that produce, I guess, like the pinnacle of, of Southern Roan wines. These are not quite that, but they're not the sort of cheap and cheerful that you get. So they're a little little more serious, really classy, sort of well-made. doesn't really use any oak on either of them. It's just all cement, take ferment. So it's all about that purity and freshness and that crunch. Um, and these are the 21. So that vintage was a little cooler. So they've all come off a little bit cooler and brighter, which is lovely for the reds, but particularly good for the whites. Because of that viognier and things, they can sometimes come across a bit sort of some of the whites can come up a little bit bloated, a little bit fat, but his have a l- lots of lovely energy and purity to them as well. Can so you... that lovely apricot sort of, you know, yellow sort of stone fruit. I was going to say, and... what sort of colour? What, what what shade of, um, what shade are we looking at with the Cote de Rhone Blanc? No, very, like white, the, all, all white. But variety, just so... but quite like light, like a Riesling no, or sorry, a deeper honey yes, colour? A little bit more sort of yellow, a little bit more sort of deeper colour. You know, Viognier and Grenache Blanc, they tend to sort of colour a little bit, particularly Viognier. Um, so a little bit more sort of a, a deeper sort of orange colour, I, I guess I would say. Not orange, like like a rosé orange, but, yeah, has a little more colour to it. But the 21s, yeah, nice and fresh and bright and crunchy and get all this wonderful stone fruit and this kind of like mineral peppery sort of note on it. And the red's really crunchy and bright, this really snappy sort of red fruit. And Carol, I tell you what, really if, you were doing sort of... a, if you're doing a, a Melbourne Cup lunch at home, it sounds like the perfect drop, doesn't it? It sounds lovely. Beautiful. Yeah, lo- yeah they... I mean... Not something you would buy and drink every single day, or no. but or you celebration. know celebration. But yeah, for a celebratory and yeah. the Cote de Rhone Rouge, which is around the same price, yep. around thirty eight dollars before the M E double M E double S discount. Correct. Um, that is um, a Syrah type. So main, mainly Grenache. That's about sixty five percent Grenache, and then a big chunk of Syrah, about thirty five percent. And I think there's just a little bit of Mavet in there, which is a minor varietal that you see out of the Rhone there. So does he do all these blends himself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's the he's the head winemaker, so he's oh. the one that sort of controls it all. Oh, you have to make. He's it, a real talent. He, when you make go, sure you plan your next trip around his I holidays, know. not. <laughs> yeah, it was just you know we got there a bit. You know we sort of it was a little last minute us getting over there. So we tried and tried for the week sort of leading up to it, and and even when we were there, we were sort of in contact, and he was just like, look, I can't get back. I mean, I'm skiing, and you know nobody's around in the in the in the vineyard or so, unfortunately. So, I mean, I saw so many amazing things. It's okay. But Ogier is one of those ones I was yeah. very keen to take a look at. But there you go. We'll have to drink maybe, the 21s maybe instead. Ma- maybe Miles could take a group of potties over for oh, a wine tour of France. <laughs> oh, Miss Jane's looking very excited about that. <laughs> Raising her arms in glee. I think that would be a fabulous, fabulous trip. I know people who've done wine trips to France or, or just peeled off from another trip and done... Mm. Um, a few days, you know, if they love Pinot, they've gone on the hunt for Pinot. I think it's nice if you don't do the whole thing. Like yep. even if you're a bit, I don't know, even if you're wine obsessed, like I'm a, you know, I would, you know, I'm a wine obsessive, but 
I, and I've been over there, to Europe, and on on travel, and I'm you know just sort of you know, more relaxing travel. It is nice to sort of break it up a little bit. It's can get yep. a little bit tedious intense. and intense. Yeah, I went to, I went to Champagne to many yep. years ago, and that was just it's a there, beautiful, yeah. beautiful region. Yeah, because I think I've I've said before on the podcast uh, when we went to Piedmont in Italy, mm. we had this idea of wandering around vineyards and going to to tastings and, and everything is closed. You have to make an appointment. To make appointments, mm. yeah. Particularly somewhere like Barolo and those areas, they're quite, they can be quite small. Like Burgundy, you have to make appointments. You kind of have to know people. And now because so many people, particularly Burgundy and Barolo, want to go there and want to meet these places, they're just like, look, do you who do you know? Who imports your wine? <laughs> do you know someone? Because, yeah, there's just too many. And they don't have that. They don't have that sort of... Um, Italy a little bit more, I think, but they don't have that that uh, cellar door culture mm, that like we, we see here in Australia and that you see maybe in the States. And that are perpetually like that. open. Yeah, perpetually open. It's just what you do. Everyone just has a cellar door of some kind normally. There's not well, – even if you're really small, you have – you know, your wines are normally somewhere. We're very happy to swing on your coattails, Miles, <laughs> if you're organising a Prince yeah. tour away. Stéphane O'Hier, the Côte de Rhone Blanc and the Côte de Rhone Rouge. Yum. While we've got you, and because yes. it's almost November and – you know, we're talking around spring racing carnival. Yes. Can you just, if you were going in to buy a really smart champagne to celebrate, you know, your winnings or something over the next week or two, or just give us one of your favourite sparkling. Yeah, so we, we've just, one's just landed back in the country. So Vil, Vilmart, um, mm-hmm. they're just their NV. So it's just it's just landed again. And it's, um, it's a Chardonnay Pinot blend, main, mainly Pinot, a little bit fuller. And he does a little bit of barrel work. So he puts his the first set of wines through barrels. So it's a little richer style, but it still has lovely focus and energy. So, And how um, do you spell that? Vilmart, V-I-L-M-A-R-T. Okay, Vilmar. And mm. that is probably a bit more expensive, I yeah, would it's imagine. About, it's about, I think, about $90 a bottle. Okay. But it is excellent. Oh, that, I put it you on the spot great. and you've come yeah. up trumps as always, Miles. Yeah, Thank it's you. Ex- excellent. One of my favourites. So. Miles, thanks for coming in. Don't forget, everybody, if you would like to take advantage of any of the offers that Prince Wine Store offer our potties via this podcast, just go on to princewinestore.com.au, use the promo code MESS, M-E-S-S, as in messenger, and at the checkout line you pop that in and you'll receive the 10% listener discount. Miles, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Caro, BSF, brought to us every week by Red Energy, our wonderful co-sponsors, along with Prince Wine Store. And you are kicking things off with a book, and it's a book by Ann Tyler, who we love. Look, sorry, it's another Ann Tyler. I reviewed Ann Tyler. What's Jane laughing about? It was only five, six weeks. No, it was it was back in early August, Corrie. Okay, passed. Exactly. Thank you very much. And it was called French Braid. Um, that was her newest book. Corrie, I went to an op shop the other day. And I didn't have anything. I, I, I wasn't even, uh, no, I was taking some stuff to an op shop. And I spotted this book. It's called A Spool of Blue Thread. It is a yet another brilliant story. And, you know, it's one of her older novels. I, I don't think I've read a bad novel by her. Um, but I honestly, I, I just thought this one was absolutely beautiful. It's another family saga. Um, about a mother and a father and their three children, sorry, four children, well, three or four, depending on your viewpoint, and all is not what it seems. And these absolute clangers of massive pieces of family history 
are just dropped really casually in a quite sort of strange way in the book without really, um, without fanfare, without a big build-up. And you go, what? Did I just read that? Is that, so he's not her, you know, he's not her father or he's not, or she, anyway. Are you um, giving, th- you're not giving things No, again, no, we're, we're sort of, we're, the family is called the Witchshank family. Um, it starts off um, focusing on Denny, who's one of the, there's two boys and two girls, two kids in this family. And um, it's just quite interesting that Denny is sort of a misfit in the family and they can't work out where, why he's such a remote sort of character, um, why he keeps disappearing, why he's not like the rest of the family. And gradually as you get through the book, you work out why. So it starts and ends with Denny. But there's a beach holiday every year to the same seaside resort. There's um, a lot of um, going back in time and um, the book goes back in time. There's one whole section where you go back to um, the main, the Mr. Wickshank's parents and how they met and how that all happened. Look, it is just um, the dialogue is beautiful. The description of this house, the, the main character is a builder or one of the main characters is a builder and this amazing house he built for someone else and coveted it forever. And I think the theme of this novel is you you think you want something so badly and you'll do anything to get it, even if it's something immoral. And usually when you end up getting that thing, it's not all it's cracked up to be anyway. Oh, I love that idea. It's the most beautiful book. Look, I, I, it was one of my – I'd never really heard of this one, A Spool of Blue Thread, and when you work out – what what the title's about, you only work that out really late in the book too. It's a revelation. So is there a bit of a sewing theme going on with Anne with these titles? Well, like Ladder of Years and French Braid. French Braid. Um, Spool of Blue Thread. No, Dinner at the Homesick Cafe. Don't think that one's... No, look, it, I would highly recommend A Spool of Blue Thread. But, Corrie, you now, moving on to screen, um, you recommended me to watch this. Well, I've watched it. And I'm just in absolute suspense. Have you finished the first series? No, not yet. I'm not, allow- I'm not allowed to. Until, Why not? Oh, because Pete's been waylaid and so at night time. Well, I watched The Budget last night. <laughs> it's called North Sea Connection. It's, it's an great. Irish drama on Netflix. It is. So Take I, us through it, Kyle. Well, I just uh, I fell upon this one, Caro, as, as I told you uh, when we were walking the next morning um, I think we watched three episodes in a row, which was... Um, it's a six-parter. It's a six-parter and it's on Netflix and it is set in Northern Ireland uh, on the North Sea and, Carol, it has more the feel of a Scandi thriller than an Irish eccentric kind of, not that Doc Martin set in Ireland, but it's not about quirky characters and nice oh, little no. village music and a little bit of violin in the pub and great crack. Although it's the cinematography about, and the scenery oh, are it's spectacular. it's stunning. Isn't it beautiful? So really feel that kind of Hebrides feel uh, if you were in Scotland. It's that same sort of windswept sea and so on. Uh, it starts, we learn the first character who comes into our being is Kira Kenny and Kira is probably late 30s, I would think. Um, she has a brother, Aidan, and she is the skipper of a fishing boat, taking on the role of her father, who's no longer alive. Her mother, played beautifully by Sinead Cusack, the wife of Jeremy Irons, um, and Sh- not Sinead, whatever the mother's name is, I can't remember, her partner, who is uh, a Swedish gentleman, who is a bit of a mystery man, but 
for all we know in the first few episodes, is certainly loved by the family and part of the furniture. Mm. And Kira, mm. <laughs> okay, don't give anything away, please, Caro. I'm trying to pick my way very carefully through this. Uh, there is an episode on the boat when Kira is out there with Sean, her, um, well, her, her, her kind of her partner, her boyfriend, on again, off again, but more particularly her deckhand. This is the first episode, in fact. Yeah. And it's what happens out at sea that determines the crime and the punishments that follow. And this is essentially a drug story, a drug running story. Smuggling story. A smuggling, old-fashioned smuggling story. It's organised crime. It is really... Innocent people getting involved in something way out of their depth. Do you know what it reminds me, as I'm telling you this, running through it, do you remember a couple of years ago on the podcast we reviewed, uh, was it 000 with Gabrielle Byrne. Oh, yes, that's right. That was brilliant. Was, oh, that, was, that wasn't the name of it. No, that was, it was the Japanese um, one. No, no. But um, it, what was it called again? Jane will look it up for us because she's so good at that stuff. Gabrielle uh, Byrne was the key, it was the father of one of the, of the shipping. Yes. Li- the shipping company. I remember. I, I know the one you're talking about. And I mean, we, followed was... it. we followed it. We followed the drugs from uh, from um, the Philippines through to. Ghost ship? No. Try again. That was a lot more. Um, this this has got a lot more. Is more your village life story though, isn't it? It's yeah. actually filmed around Galway and the Galway docks, and um, they've tried to make it look like a. There's a bit of Norwegian fishing port about it, and obviously the Swedish connection comes in to being in the first or second episode when a Swedish cop arrives to investigate. Well, we don't really know what she's investigating, but it soon all becomes clear. It is. But there's the there's the policeman, the local policeman who is still doing things the old fashioned way. When the Swedish inspector says, Well, you should really question everybody with a boat here, he says, But they're all my friends. So you get that really strong sense of his moral dilemma. He's one of the village, yet he's not uh, not an uncommon theme in these sorts of stories, the the tortured local cop. But uh, the characters in the family, um, in particular, worth mentioning, um, well, Kira is played by Lydia uh, McGuinness, who's, um, who's a wonderful uh, actor. And her brother, Aidan, who is, uh, I've seen him before, Caro, but I can't think where on earth I have seen him. Yes, he's definitely been in a lot of British oh, um, thrillers. Snake in the Grass, self-centred. Um, prepared to put all of his relationships and indeed lives on the line in his in his in his attempt to um, to feather his nest. I just uh, uh, who plays him? Care uh, Logan is the actor's name. Well, I'm here to tell you there's definitely going to be series two because it does not it does not get resolved. I mean, it, there are so many things left hanging as a result of. Um, what happens in episode six. So I'm now just, you know, absolute, well, absolutely desperate. Well, we, we both highly recommend this. And, uh, in fact, those who over the weekend heard me talking about it and or, or said, what was that thing, you know, and I text them the North Sea Connection, they've come back to me saying, yep, watched two episodes last night, love it. So that's North Sea Connection you on know what, You know what else has just come back? New series, Shetland. <gasps> Jimmy Perez is back. 
I've done two My Shetlands. friend Scott told me about this, but oh, it's, it's not on ABC. It's Where is it again? It's on um, BBC First on Foxtel. What are you putting your hand up for over there, Miss Jane? I'm just saying that I think it is zero, zero, zero. A cocaine shipment makes its way yeah, to Yeah, I think, I oh, think you're it? right. I actually what thought was the that Japan- too. Okay, what was that fabulous Japanese one that Caro and I... Hirigashi. Hirigashi. Yes, okay. That's completely time. Yeah, completely different. But yes, yeah. no. No, look, um, I recommend North Sea Connection too. And if, you, if you've got Foxtel, check out Shetland. Oh, speaking of remote, beautiful places that we want to visit. And also, everybody, if you love a period drama, The Empress. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, we might talk about that next week or another time. So, Carol, I'm doing a recipe this week, and this was one that I prepared for my um, better known as the christening lunch, but when we had lunch the other day with all the families to celebrate the fact that I had um, proposed to Ronald McDonald to become my godfather after all these years. And this is from one of my favourite cookbooks, Always Add Lemon by Danielle Alvarez. We've had a couple of recipes from this book in our time at this podcast. Yes, I've got this book, thanks to Clem. I think think this is a sensational summer cookbook, everybody. And it's about three years old, but I'm sure that you can, um, if it's not at your local bookshop, I'm sure they'll get it in for you. This recipe, Caro, is tomato and fried crouton salad with tonato and capers. And the salad is, um, is, is pretty straightforward. Um, it's uh, mixed heirloom tomatoes, uh, a bunch of basil, salt-packed capers rinsed and dried, and um, sourdough loaf crust removed into little bits and pieces and some olive oil. The tonato is an interesting tonato recipe. I thought it was absolutely delicious. Um, tin tuna, anchovy fillets, uh, the capers, egg yolk, olive oil, Soy sauce, lemon juice, Worcestershire sauce, and three tablespoons of cream. All of the exact um, amounts will be on the show notes. Now, as I said to you, this is the first time I've made this recipe. And so what you do is you basically assemble the tomatoes on top of the tomato. So you pour the tomato on a flattish sort of serving dish and you put all of the tomatoes. I added some vine-ripe tomatoes because they looked um, in pretty good um, shape. I think heirloom tomatoes, it's a bit early for them. I did an heirloom tomato salad with all mixed tomatoes the other day, and they were a bit flowery. Oh, it's mushy. Yeah. They, they are. They, I yeah. think we have to wait till February, March to really enjoy Miss Jane's nodding. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, Gardener Jane. How are your How are your tomatoes going, Jane? I've only just planted mine. You don't even plant them in my area until at least... November, Melbourne, Melbourne, Melbourne Cup. Cup Day. So yes, um, mm. yeah, but uh, but so Caro, I, as I said, the cherry tomatoes and the vine tomatoes looked really good. So I had a bit of a mix, but what I didn't do probably uh, was actually have enough of them because I think you need to cover the vitello tomato with the tomato rather than having any anything show through and then scatter all the So bas- the tomatoes are the hero the of the dish, as they say. Exactly, because I think the tomato was the not was sort of the hero and it didn't look quite right. I think what would be lovely with this dish is as you're serving it to put it on your plate, on your salad dish with everything else in a buffet or something, if all of a sudden there was that unexpected pleasure of that rather thick but beautiful dressing underneath. Scatter lots of greens on it. Um, I had basil and I had a little bit of rocket as well. It looks absolutely beautiful. Tomato and fried crouton salad. So is it a standalone dish? Uh 
Well, I suppose it is really. Well, it's part of a yeah. buffet. It's part of a buffet. I definitely think, or if it's the one, like you could have fish, and this is a beautiful salad. The the tonato, of course, you can use that with anything. You know, like. Well, I Gosh, wish you'd told you? me it was in Always Add Lemon. I could have just made it myself. I had it sitting on my very own bookshelf. I've you never seen it. I don't think you asked me where I got it. Anyway, that's it. And no, Miss Jane will pop the recipe on the show notes. I think it's a winner for summer. But as I said, maybe up the number of uh, tomatoes that you use. And as Caro said, just beware of your heirlooms at this time of year. Maybe give it a bit longer. Caro, that was BSF for Red Energy. Owned by Snowy Hydro is Red Energy a renewable energy leader. Switch to red energy today. Now, you're grumpy. Well, I'm more than grumpy, Corrie. I'm actually shattered and devastated by this, and oh, I know gosh. you are too. And I've I've sort of, I first, I think you first told me actually about six weeks ago, and everyone you talk to who has been going to this cinema all their lives is equally devastated. And that is um, the fact that, the Sorrento Cinema, the Athenaeum Cinema, that has been, well, I've been going there for, I've been going there since I was four or five. So since the early 60s, is apparently been sold to developers, a developer who is going to turn it into apartments. Now, this cinema is, um, for people who are familiar with the Mornington Peninsula, it is the heart and soul of the main street, of one of the most beautiful main streets in the world, a main street that is by the week re- starting to resemble Noosa, as Mike Sheehan said the other day. I hope he won't mind me quoting him. Nothing wrong with Noosa, but it's just so many one-off beautiful shops are being taken over by international or, you know, conglomerates or high street stores. Um, It's absolutely devastating. There's another wonderful shop that was called the Sandarn Gallery that's been closed down and taken over by a Big, big stale. You know how I feel about greedy landlords, Caro. Just well, saying. Well, this cinema, went, it was a one cinema. It had a video shop next door for quite a long time. Got, heaven knows how that continued to run up until last year. Then it branched out and became three cinemas with the main cinema still intact. Um, it, the, the carpet with the starfish on it. Um, nice Mr. Crowd, who, if, if you ask nicely, will bring, bring you a hot chocolate if you pay for it before you go in while the movie's running because he's a bit strapped. There was, I've seen the last film I saw there was Amsterdam. I often go on my own, often. Brendan and I went and saw Maverick there earlier this year and it was absolutely packed to the gunnels. And I just can't believe that this cinema, this beautiful old cinema, is going to close down. It is just there's a little cinema that, as you know, there's a medium cinema. It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and there's a big cinema. And there are sometimes you go there and there are 10 people in the cinema during the day, and they're not open every day anymore. They're open, unless it's sort of school holidays, maybe four days a week. But, Corrie, this is something so heartbreaking to me. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it just makes me so sad. It's happening in regional towns all over the place. What is perceived as valuable real estate being the local cinema is being taken over and developers are saying, let's put up apartments and let's put in some of these ugly shops. Oh, my goodness. There is a rumour that Palace Cinemas, a wonderful group, currently running the British Film Festival, which um, I've got tickets to – we've been buying tickets here, there and everywhere for that. I love Palace Cinemas. I'm a Palace Cinema member. I heard they looked at it. I don't know whether that's going to happen, whether the developer is resisting it. 
But this will be, I mean, for Sorrento to lose its cinema, for the Mornington Peninsula to lose that cinema would be absolutely devastating. So I just, yeah, I'm more than grumpy. I'm completely shattered. You've heard maybe it'll stay open until the end of January. I have heard that. Uh, so at least it's one last summer, unless, of course, the lovely people at Palace Cinemas buy the property and continue to show us our movies. And I'm with you. Childhood memories of going there and buying a chock top. Um, very good, grumpy, Caro. Um, now, six quick questions again for Red Energy. My question to you is, what legal stash fascinated you this week? Well, is a court case looming between Kraft, the the um, massive um, cheesemaker, manufacturing giant, but in this case, cheesemaker, they're being um, challenged by the Italian producers of Parmigiano-Reggiano because they... Parmigiana Reggiano producers are saying, Kraft, you cannot call that dried stuff, <laughs> the dried parmesan, dried cheese parmesan, you know, that powdery stuff. Mm. I was actually reading what is in the Kraft dried alleged parmesan, in inverted commas, maybe not to be called that anymore. I think there's a lot, if you're going to call something parmesan, I think you've got to have a certain smell, flavour, coloration, and fat content. It's like champagne, isn't it? Well, it, it, you, can't call, that, you can't call your sparkling champagne. Yeah, and this um, Parmigiano Reggiano is only made in five Italian regions Parma, Reggio Emilia, Mod, Modena, Medina, Bologna, and Mantua. But the additives in the craft cheese, are, well, there's a lot of additives there. There's a lot, including skim milk powder. I won't even go into what's in it. But they're saying. Kraft is saying, no, 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 Parmesan has become a generic term for this sort of cheese. So we're going to keep calling it Parmesan. So let's just see where mm. that one goes, Corrie. Very interesting. Um, now, Corrie, Dame Judy Dench calling out the producers of The Crown. Good call, bad call. Very good call. I didn't even know she'd called them. What did she call them out? Oh, about? interesting. You didn't hear about this. So no. she wrote to the Times uh, on the 20th of October. I haven't she, read the Times letters page lately. She wrote it. <laughs> well spotted by you. She wrote, well, it, it went, it, thank you. But I, I, I actually, I do subscribe to the Times as an app. But um, this one was more on my social media feed, which I was very interested in. And, of course, I dug deep into the World Wide Web. She wrote a letter. She, Of course, I have to preface this by saying she's a very good friend of the Queen consort Camilla. But Judy Dench, who's 87, wrote to uh, the producers of the Netflix saying that the Crown, quote, crude sensationalism and said that the Netflix series about the royal family is, quote, cruelly unjust, quote, quote. Really? And um, she demanded that Netflix insert a disclaimer at the start of the program to say it is a, quote, fictionalised account. Netflix said no way. Judy Dench said she thought it would be not only a mark of respect for the late Queen, but also would help preserve Netflix's reputation. There was a lot of brouhaha over this. The, the, um, the anti-Judy people were saying, well, of course she'd be saying this because she's a friend of the royal family and they've put her up to this and she's representing their views. And then there were others, like myself, who thought that's actually pretty fair because I gather Series 5, which starts in a week, uh, is because also because it's it's almost in real time. These are pe- these people are, are now still very much with us. That in fact, it really does take the Diana story um, to a kind of a whole new level and the Camilla and Charles affair. 
So Larissa anyway, Larissa Becky plays Diana. Yes, she's yeah. very good. Beautiful Australian actress. So and good Australian actor too. Just to finish this, Netflix have actually put in a disclaimer. Oh, well done, Judy. So oh, they've so, add, so, so they've added call. fictional dramatization inspired by real events, which they didn't have previously. So that's interesting because remember all Charles and Camilla's friends were outraged at the last series about the way they were portrayed. Well, I think it's interesting that Judy Dench, who we gather is a very honourable woman, she wouldn't have been doing this because they asked her. She would do it because she believed in it, and she's and she's an absolute doyen of stage and screen herself. She would understand the ethics and the dilemma here. For her to go public, I think, is really interesting. So anyway, it when's was it a good coming? Call. When's it coming on? Uh, I th- is it the fifth of November? Something oh, like that. Anyway, geez, next be a week. Busy sometime. month. <laughs> Guess what? We'll be talking about for busy probably month. about a month. Um, Carol, which recently released national survey figures don't you trust? Well, there's a um, Roy Moore. I think it was Roy Morgan poll that came out saying that. Well, I, I believe this bit that Woolworth. Woolworths have taken over from Bunnings as Australia's most trusted brand. Oh. But, um, and, and, you know, the big supermarket chain, of course. But what really, and um, ahead of Aldi as well, what I find difficult to believe is that um, Qantas was named Australia's most trusted airline. Well, (laughs) they must be desperate. I mean, surely Virgin has become more trustworthy than Qantas. And um, maybe I think people have just gone with Qantas because it's an Aussie brand name. And get this, Corrie, you'll find this our most trusted service, Australia Post. I mean, what a joke. As if Australia Post are our most trusted service. Remember last Christmas? Think of all the mail that's gone missing, the way they took five years more than, longer than any other service industry across the world. Years, not five years. To move in with the times. No, I'm not, I'm not an Australia Post fan. I think people have just seen that label and they remember the good old days and they say Australia Post and they say Qantas. I don't believe it. Corrie, what musical performance did you finally catch up with and love? Well, you may know this, Caro. Uh, my friend Jim put me onto this on the weekend. You remember when Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature? Yes. He did not go to the ceremony in Oslo in Norway. No always attended by the royal family of Norway. Patty Smith did, and she sang one of his songs. And Miss Jane might just give us a little bit of a... The executioner's face is always well hidden Where hunger is ugly, where souls are forgotten Where black is the colour, where none is the number And I'll tell it and think it and speak it and a hard rain's going to fall and there was not a dry eye in the house. It's a YouTube video. If you haven't seen it, just type in Patti Smith and um, Nobel Prize. It'll come up. And what, what, I, what I love about this, so many things I love about this. First of all, it's an absolutely bejeweled black tie or white tie audience. Yep. And Patti Smith sings this song with, she was actually given uh, the okay by Bob Dylan to do it. And the Nobel team organised it. She is so nervous at one stage she loses her place and apologises to the audience and they all applaud her because they're so willing her over the line with these amazing lyrics, which, of course, are interpreted as uh, an anti-nuclear war, um, anti-war anthem that Bob Dylan wrote in 1962. But her... Her interpretation of this, Carol, is even thinking about it, I have tears. It is 
it, you can see in her passionate um, recalling of these lyrics and the music itself why he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Now, at the time, as a bookseller, we were a bit, hmm, well, you know, there are so many writers who are deserving, but in fact, I have changed my mind and this video had an awful lot to do with it. So highly recommend that you have a look at that one. That is a, that's a great, um, I was just thinking about um, Leon Russell and his version of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, yeah, which was brilliant. Yes, it was good. And so I looked up um, some of the other people who've recorded Brian it. Brian Ferry. Well done. Joan Baez who I guess some, Jimmy Cliff, Jason Mraz, a lot of people have recorded this. That sounds like an absolutely brilliant version though. The, the emotion in the audience and the emotion in Paddy's voice is really um, worth having a look. Um, Cara, what's the biggest international pile on, pile on your witness this year? As opposed to pile on, P-Y-L-O-N. I know, I do sound got tongue-tied there. Look, I mean, I, I, I'm not, not necessarily disagreeing with it, but seriously, Meghan Markle, like every single day there's another nasty article about her. Now, half the time she brings it on herself because she does a silly interview with someone and, you know, says something stupid. And, or speaks She's just done one with variety, hasn't she? Yeah, speaks inappropriately. I spoke about the Queen and her relationship with her and people just said just so inappropriate. But boy, oh boy, I mean, it, it's, it's as bad as I've ever seen. It's not nice. Oh, I tell you what, if you want to have some anti-Meghan Markle uh, literature beside your bed... Read Tom Bowers' Revenge. Oh, oh my God! Well, just, I'm halfway through it, and it's just I have to, I have to do a big U turn. Well, I think read Tina Brown's book. I, no, I did. Oh, I did on yeah. your recommendation. Oh, I did. Keep he, he loathes her. Corrie, what is your amazing fact for the week? Okay, so this is a this fact is about the lectern that is used at Downing Street, number ten Downing Street, every time the prime minister. It's so weird, isn't it? The way it works in London, when the prime minister wants to address the press, he or she comes out of the front door and stands there and delivers it, usually in the rain because it's England, it's London, but. Um, in recent times, it's been behind very interesting podiums. Now, the podium at the t- leading up to and including the time of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in the 90s and early 2000s was just basically a microphone carrow on a little stand with some wheels. David Cameron then came in and had one made specifically for him, varnished, blonde wood, very curved, and somewhere, somehow, somebody found a portable royal coat of arms and they, which they can attach on and off, thank God, because there have been a few prime ministers in recent times. <laughs> so that was his. Then Theresa May came in and she wanted something very pared back. So she had her own podium, which was, um, again, with the royal seal, but it was stripped back, no nonsense, dark timber. Boris arrived. Can you imagine his podium? Big, bold, brash, walnut veneer, not the real thing. <laughs> oh, really? Sturdy. And then... And then Liz Truss. Oh, came surely in. she didn't get a new podium. She had a, a new podium, Carol. If you, as I'm talking to you, why don't you just um, put in um, podium and Liz Truss and Downing Street? You'll see, it is the most bizarre wooden. I mean, actually, it's quite beautiful to be to be honest. But for the Prime Minister to be delivering these media conferences with this podium, imagine Cuisinier rods that we used to play with as kids. Those wooden Cuisinier rods. And imagine you build a big Eiffel Tower like we used to love doing and then you kind of twist it around in a circular motion. That was her timber. That was hers and it lasted, what was it, 49 days, So what happens say? to all these old podiums? <laughs> 
Boris's cost three thousand. I understand three thousand pounds. So now Rishi Sumac, everybody's wondering what will Rishi's be. Well, like? his is paler than Liz's. Looking at the pictures, I haven't seen his yet. No, I didn't know he'd built one. Yet. No, he's, he's only been to, there a minute. Well, he's, I see him standing at a podium. It looks more. Have a, you seen Liz Trusses? Yeah, I, I, I have. <laughs> it's just weird. It's Can not I just, a weird sort of pattern. Uh, what, a break while pattern I'm on a roll they? with Dowling Street um, facts, Downing Street facts. Can I just tell you? Have you heard about Larry the Cat? No, I haven't, but I think you're going to tell me. <laughs> Larry the Cat is the chief mouser of the Cabinet Office at 10 Darling, Downing Street. Larry is a brown and white tabby, we think about 10 years old now, who has been living there and under the, under the reign of Theresa May, suddenly became rather agitated, has developed a rather um, unfortunate personality hab- habit of biting and terrorising oh. everybody, including... The cat next door, the Foreign Office cat called Palmerston, who lives next door, they've been having some violent episodes that people... Oh, say. Well, think about the media sitting outside waiting for the press conference to begin. Mm. What happens nearly every day? Animals get a bit nervy when, you know, the things aren't going well (laughs) Well, around. Well, Larry and Palmerston have the big brawl. Well, the other day the media were waiting and they, of course, they're filming because they have nothing else to do. Larry the cat took on a fox. So a fox just appeared in Downing Street outside what? and Larry chased it off. So if anybody would like to see this YouTube, it is viral. You can see it. It's everywhere. Are you watching it now as I'm talking to you? No. No, I'm looking at you sort of really I'm, – I'm, I can't understand how a fox would appear in broad daylight. No, no, it's dusk, but somebody oh, was okay. there filming. Somebody was waiting for some media announcement. So, uh, But it is quite fascinating. So anyway, that wasn't really my fact. My facts were about the podium. So that's it. A bit I did of trivia not know that, you. Corey. You've, you've informed me yet again. Yeah, lots of YouTube things to look at, Kaz, over the next week, your homework. Thank you, of course, to Miss Jane, particularly for bringing in that beautiful bit of Patti Smith music. And thank you, of course, to Miles for coming in from Prince Wine Store, our co-sponsors with the wonderful Red Energy, owned by Snowy Hydro and a leader in renewable energy. Don't forget we're on Instagram, Facebook, and if you want to receive our show notes each week, just hit the sign-up button on Facebook. Or if you don't have Facebook, contact Jane at feedback at don't shoot don'tshootpod.com.au and she will subscribe you. It's been a lovely chat, Caro, and what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's Most Trusted Energy Providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au.